I came across this man. I called it the nowhere man or the accidental Pakistani. It was a really difficult and complicated story, but I got really involved in it because it showed how states treat human beings and how it's so arbitrary what nationality you end up holding a passport for. Welcome to The Women, a production of iHeartRadio and myself, your host, Rose Reed. Every episode, I'll sit down with one person who has journeyed to do the extraordinary. And on this episode, I'm speaking with Bina Sarver. My name is Bina Sarver. I'm a journalist and a filmmaker who hasn't made films in some time and an artist who doesn't draw very often. And I'm from Pakistan and I live now in Boston, but uh, my heart is still in Pakistan, but also here, so I'm divided all the time. (laughs) Bina Sarver is an editor and a writer. She's a documentary filmmaker and teacher. Her work is a mix of personal narrative and reporting, but there's always a focus on human rights, which she examines globally and in her home country of Pakistan. She has taught journalism in Harvard and Princeton and Brown. Her opinion pieces have appeared in the major papers from the New York Times and the Boston Globe to The Guardian. One of the reasons that Bina's work and her archive is of note is because Pakistan is one of the more dangerous countries in the world to be a journalist. The New York Times has reported that it's, quote, almost open season on journalists and critics of Pakistan's military for years now. These journalists have experienced disappearances, extrajudicial killings, torture, and intimidation. For many Pakistani journalists who are living abroad, Twitter has been this portal to home and a safe network for expression and connecting. Bina comments daily and has over 200,000 followers on Twitter. Pakistan has entered a new era of censorship. It's government and military cancel or ban media organizations that cover opposition or dissenting opinions, which has been further supported by the passing of a new cyber crimes law that allows the government to prosecute online activists. So much of Bina's work is tied to her personal life. She writes and comments for Pakistani organizations, although she's been based in Cambridge for the last decade. And so when I met with her in Boston, I wanted to ask her about her family history and her fascination on the intersection of gender and power, even if that means covering violent topics or putting herself in danger. This episode references and describes sexual assault in some detail. Take care while listening, or you may want to skip this one. How do you describe what you do and why is it important to you? So I would say primarily I'm a journalist. Actually, I started out as an artist, but then I sort of the more I got into journalism, the less art I did. Art is still a very important part of my life, but that's not what I do professionally. So I would say professionally I'm a journalist, but also because I grew up in Pakistan where we had a lot of military dictatorships, I experienced two. I became an activist because of my involvement with organizations like the Human Rights Commission of Pakistan and the Pakistan-India People's Forum for Peace and Democracy, which are non-profit or, you know, voluntary, basically, organizations. And I know in the United States, journalists are not supposed to be activists, but I've always done that in Pakistan, and it's been a balancing act, especially now that I'm teaching journalism and I'm In order to teach, you have to learn how to, you know, you break down stuff that you've been doing for many years. And um, I realize now more how important it is 
not to be objective because I don't think you can be objective as a journalist because everybody comes in with their own worldview and their conditioning and their experiences, their lived experiences. But like my um, former editor from Interpress Service who now runs Nepali Times in Kathmandu said years ago, and this resonated with me, that we're not objective as journalists, but we can strive to be fair and balanced. We can safely say that there are not as many female journalists as there are male journalists in Pakistan. Is this something that you've decided to be brave about, to keep pursuing? Is um, it a choice? Well, I never... So sometimes people ask you questions that really make you think, right? And you've actually done that in this interview quite a lot. But I remember this um, actor and activist who asked me at a conference we were at something about me as a woman journalist. And I said, well, I'm not a woman journalist. I'm a journalist. And she said, yes, but you're being a woman informs who you are as a journalist. And she's absolutely right. A lot of producers that contact me from television stations in Pakistan that have cropped up, a lot of them are women. There are a lot of women news anchors and um, journalists. So I think the figure is actually really rising. My concern is not about women, about the quality of journalism as a whole, because I don't think they're getting the kind of training that we got when we stumble into this. I mean, I didn't get training as a journalist. I learned on the job, but I had really good mentors and trainers and teachers. And I'm afraid that there aren't that many now because it's become so commercial and so partly to do with that 24-7 cycle, which is about quick, 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 which doesn't give you time to breathe or think or process. In 2006, Bina started to make a documentary called Mukhtar Mai, The Struggle for Justice, which tells the story of a survivor of sexual violence. Mukhtar Mai is the survivor of a 2002 gang rape. The rape was vengeance for her younger brother's alleged affair with a woman from a rival tribe. Investigations later revealed that her brother had actually been molested by the rival tribesmen. Mukhtar Mai and her family were successful in bringing the perpetrators to justice. And Mukhtar is seen in Pakistan as a symbol of women's rights. She created a school and wrote a best-selling autobiography and has become a celebrity of sorts. Bina's film captures all sides of this case and won Best Documentary at the Jaipur International Film Festival in 2009. You do a very open and deep examination of power class and the intersection of the two when it comes to violence against women. Mm -hmm. And there's been a lot of publicized rape and gang rape that have been essentially revenge acts within a town or within a community. And you've written extensively about it. You've covered it extensively. One of the films that you made focused on one woman who got the support of her family. Mukhtar Mai, The Struggle for Justice. Yes. Yeah. Could you tell us about that film? So that's a film made about a woman who became a celebrity after she had been gang raped because she stood up and she didn't let the shame of the rape hold her back. You know, that's a universal thing. When there is sexual abuse, when there is rape, on the survivor's part, there's often shame and guilt that somehow they must have brought it on. And this is an issue that I've worked with uh, for a long, long time. So Mukhtar Mai went and filed a case in the police against that gang rape. I mean, this happened in 2002. And she went through the system. She went through the district court then the higher court and the Supreme Court. And it's dragged on for all these years. And just recently, earlier this year, 
the perpetrators were mostly acquitted except maybe for one or two people. But she went through the system. She didn't try and take exact revenge herself. And her case was taken up. It became a big worldwide celebrity case. She met Kofi Annan and Hillary Clinton. She was feted on the world stage. Um, well, in the wake of her of her publicity and publicly describing her, what what had happened to her, but also the dialogue around how do we let go of shame and how do we call out this revenge act rather than just talking about it in terms of sexual assault. Right. And in the wake of all of that, she created a, a school. Yeah. When the government gave her some compensation money, she used that to build a, a school for girls and for boys in her village. There was no school in the village. And her story had inspired people around the country, around the world, because she didn't do something just for herself. She did something for other people. And then also she didn't hide behind her shame. She became the face of rape survivors. Uh, it was, I think, very inspiring for women around the world that this woman who was unlettered had never been to school. And she, she is a brilliant speaker and thinker. She's got a vision. She's got a political vision. She's very, very smart. Well, so much of what defines her now is after the yes. incident. And yes. it's not about the incident defining her. Yes. Why do you think that uh, gendered violence is used the way it is? Because it can be, because it's about power. It's not about sex. It's about power. I mean, we know this. Rape is not a, it's not a sex crime. It's a crime of power. It's to exert power over somebody else. What can we learn from how assault against women in various ways and in various places tells us about that society or tells us about what we need to, to do for facilitating uh, women's full participation in society. Because I think we see a range of this. I mean, think of the Me Too movement in the United States, and we think about how we're changing even our word choice around these revenge acts in Pakistan and India. We're really getting closer to a dialogue about what are the underlying political, economic, and social factors underneath them, exactly. rather than t telling stories about victims. Exactly. So I think the thing to remember here is that let's focus on the perpetrators rather than the, and I'm going to call them survivors, not victims. The perpetrators, why in a situation, like say in the United States, you have this date rape is so common. And, it, you know, I think we only hear about it at the tip of the iceberg. And I do think that even in the case of Pakistan or India, I, I do think that just a woman's word should not be enough in the sense that it shouldn't be my word against yours. There, there needs to be some kind of a process. You can't just completely pillory somebody or, like, get them out of their jobs or whatever without some kind of process. That has to be worked out. But I think in a lot of these cases, the men, mostly it's men, and it is about power. And why don't we talk about how we are bringing up our boys? Why don't we talk about how we are teaching them that no means no, no matter what stage of the relationship you are at, whether you are actually married or whether you are on a first date or a 10th date or whatever. I think that a man who forces himself upon a woman in any way Somewhere in the back of his mind or heart, he knows that what he is doing is wrong. 
but he chooses to ignore that little voice because he's always been told he can and he's privileged and well she came this far and why did she say yes to this or whatever and i think that really this me too movement is about changing the conversation and about how we look at these incidents there's a line that i came across i think that between yourself and a friend and she had written to you saying they too were the sons of their mothers mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons that I really love some of the way that you work through some of these most difficult issues. It's not about canceling or retribution, but about dialogue and what this says about the opportunity for us to raise better sons, to have a more open society in which we can talk about these things. We focus a lot on, you know, how what we need to change. But once we change that What's the benefit to all, to men and to women, when we overcome this obstacle and we can talk about something else? Um, that's a really important question. And a concept that I've become familiar with lately um, is the concept of restorative justice. That's something that is so important for all this, because what is the aim? And uh, one of the pieces I wrote about the Me Too uh, movement was after some cases in Pakistan had really come out. And I, it was a very difficult piece to write. And I actually had started writing it months earlier, and I had let it go. And then I picked it up again and wrote about it. In my research, I came across some really excellent articles which helped me to understand the issue better. And a question in one of those articles that I quoted in what I wrote what is the aim of the movement for justice? Is it to call out people and shame them or is it to create a better society? Because if you're trying to create a better society, then naming and shaming, that can be part of it. I'm not really very comfortable with that part of it, to be honest. But if the aim is to create a better society, then we have to have these dialogues. We have to have these difficult conversations. Bina's writing really focuses on restorative justice. So rather than focusing exclusively on punishment, to really talk about rehabilitation and reconciliation with all parties involved, perpetrators, survivors, and the larger community. Bina is incredibly outspoken in this approach. Most recently, former Pakistani President Musharraf, who currently lives in exile, has been sentenced to death in Pakistan for treason. Musharraf seized power in a military coup in 1999 and ruled as president for the next decade. Bina has spoken out against the death penalty, and even in this case, as she pushes for reconciliation at all levels of politics and discourse in Pakistan. So much of what you do is calling out what you see. You're a prolific writer. You've been writing a blog in the digital space between what you write, what you publish. It's almost seamless. You're on Twitter the short films that you've made, all harken back to an examination of self when you examine the state. How do you describe your process of your actual work? Well, um, sometimes it's things that I pitch or like I'll say this is something I really want to write about, so I'll sound out editors that I've been working with or, or somebody's connected me with and I'll say this is what I want to write about. And any freelancer will know how difficult it is to pitch. You pitch so many things before one gets accepted sometimes. There are some publications where anything I pitch pretty much they'll take, but th- that's not as challenging. And also it may not reach the people that... I w- if I want to try and reach beyond those circles, the pitching is harder. 
What circles are you trying to reach? Right now, I think I'm trying to reach more of a global audience. The Western audience, I see myself kind of as a bridge between, because I wasn't intending to come live in the United States. I kind of almost accidentally ended up living here because my husband is here. I got married to somebody who's living here and he didn't want to go back to Pakistan. So I ended up coming here thinking, you know, I can work from anywhere. I'm a writer, a journalist. And I left a good job and came here. And then I realized that actually, no, I really have to find my niche all over again here. I've got to find my own space here. And at first I was not very happy about being here. Sorry, America, I didn't want to live here. But It's hard to leave your home. It is hard to leave your home. But I really do appreciate a lot of things about living here. And I like living here now. But I also like my own country. And I think this is the dilemma that anybody who has more than one home will always face. Which is compounded when home is across water and borders and cultures and yes. language. You're always torn. You're always torn. On the one hand, I'm really, really involved with what's going on in Pakistan, in South Asia in general. And on the other hand, I'm also involved in the peace and democracy movements here in some way. I, I sort of see myself as part of a tribe of, uh, I would call it a, so tribe is actually, you see tribe as a very, um, uh, what's the word for, like clo closed or insular, right? Uh, because you're born into a tribe normally. But when I think of my tribe, my tribe is, it doesn't matter what nationality or ethnicity or religion or gender you belong to. It's the tribe of people who hold certain values. Right. I call it the dinner party tribe. The people you would like to have dinner with. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they could be the dinner party tribe or the chai tribe, like people I'd like to have chai with, chai is oh, I like yeah, that. tea, yeah. You were about to, I was wondering if you could finish that thought. Mm -hmm. You said you feel like a bridge. Yeah, so yes, to come back to that thought, when it hit home to me that I'm actually living here, and this is also home, um, Boston, Cambridge, this is home for me, I also realized that I'm in a very privileged position because I'm a kind of a, like I said, a bridge between people here and people back home in Pakistan. And there's a lot of anti-American feeling in Pakistan. And there's a lot of Islamophobia and anti-Pakistan feeling here. And I feel like what I can do is to show people that, that the struggles that they are engaged in for democracy and justice are actually the same everywhere. What would you say is a work example of something you've done in the last three years that really exhibits the mission that you're on right now? Gosh, um, so I came across this man who messaged me and something caught my attention and I started to correspond with him. And uh, his story is an incredibly long and complicated story, but I called it the nowhere man or the accidental Pakistani because he was somebody whose parents were both born in India, in Hyderabad, India, and his so his siblings were all born in the Middle East. And he's the only one out of all of them who uh, has a Pakistani passport, but he had never lived in Pakistan. And then when he uh, lost his job, he had to leave the Middle East because he no longer had that work status. And the only country he could go to was Pakistan, where he knew nobody, and he had never lived there. It was a really difficult and complicated story, but I got really involved in it because it showed how states treat human beings, and how it's so arbitrary what nationality you end up holding a passport for.
I think this is a really wonderful allegory for both where your work starts and where it unfolds. And I think that so much of your work is trying to facilitate dialogue rather than coming up with blame or solutions. In 1947, India split. Mm -hmm. And if you could just tell us where your parents are from and where they moved to in Pakistan and where you grew up. Yeah. So my parents were born in undivided India in what became India under the British, because before the British, who ruled it for 200 years, it was never a country. India was never a country. It emerged as a nation, as a country under British rule through the two world wars. And um, the founder of Pakistan, Muhammad Ali Jinnah, was not intending to create a separate country. Because Muslims were a minority in a Hindu-majority country, so he wanted the Muslim-majority states within India have some say in the political power, even if they were not in the majority in the overall federation. One thing I will preface that by saying is that although Pakistan was made ostensibly in the name of religion, I think it was not essentially for religion, but for political power. And I think that that's what happens everywhere when you see religion being used in politics. The real purpose is not religion, it's political power or economic access. One thing that's been a big focus of your work that you've talked about in your writing and in your films is examining gender equality and what women mean to the state. I'm wondering if you could give us your philosophy on why is it important to talk about women's participation in society and government? Why is that mm. such a good indicator for the health of a state? Well, very simply, because if women are to be viewed as equal human beings, then they must be involved in all aspects of life or government. And uh, I think it was the Women's Conference at Beijing in 1995, I think, which posited that women's rights are human rights, which is like, you shouldn't need to say that, which was the time that I edited this uh, little booklet of interviews of little girls in Pakistan in different communities uh, which I love. That was the first publication I edited outside of a newspaper. Oh, could you walk us through that? Yeah. So I didn't do the interviews myself. There was a researcher who had been hired by the Family Planning Association of Pakistan to talk to the participants of a project that they had done. So they had their health workers or whatever in different communities in around the country. And they were like study circles of little girls, young young girls, like between the ages of maybe 8 and 13 or 14 or 15, something like that, like young girls. And they were talking to them about uh, education and health and basic hygiene and, you know, like, but it was dialogue. And it empowered those girls to the extent that some of them were able to stand up when they found out that one of their class fellows was being married off. And it showed how much potential these little girls, these young girls had when they were given the opportunity, what they could do. It was so powerful. It, it was really um, very inspiring for me. And I think one way that you have a dialogue with someone is by listening to them and by not calling them names. So I really avoid on social media also um, being rude, being uncivil, because when you are uncivil, you close doors. If you call people names or you are rude to them, you're blocking 
any kind of hope you might have for a conversation because people then just react and it's react, react, react. And I and I see this mirrored in my personal life in the sense that I, by nature, am a very impatient person. But over the years, I have really schooled myself to be more patient. More so, and I, no matter how rude somebody is to me, I very rarely will they get a rise out of me. And do you feel like you benefit from that? Oh, definitely. Bina comes from a very vocal and activist family. Both of her parents are well-known in Pakistan, and her late father was a leader in the student movement. She has dedicated a big portion of her professional and personal life to digitizing his writings. As Bina pushes for open dialogue, she really values the representation of all voices and commentators, and especially that of her parents' generation, that there is not just one narrative of Pakistan. Bina has archived much of her father's work and has made it accessible for readers online. Dialogue seems to be such a big part of who you are as a person. It seems to be a big part of your work. I'm wondering if you can tell us as a as a child about some of the first dialogue you had with your dad and about his influence on you. So my father was not a very communicative person. He he was a, doc, a medical doctor, but he had been a student leader. He had led Pakistan's first student movement, and he was like really hero worshipped by a lot of people. So I would, in, in the city in Karachi where I grew up, my parents were both well known in their own circles. My mother was a teacher, and very often when I started working as a journalist, I would come across people who'd say, "Oh, you're their daughter, you're Doctor Sarwar's daughter. Oh, you're Zakia Sarwar's daughter." And my mother gets a real kick out of now when she meets people. They're like, "Oh, you're Bina's mother." <laughs> <laughs> Finally, <laughs> but um, so my my dialogues with my father were really uh, more political, more than personal. So before you became political, what was your house like at dinner time with you and your sister and your mom and your dad? and my brother? I mean, we didn't have that kind of you know. My mother, they were both busy. My father would finish eating, he would get up and leave the table. We wouldn't we didn't sit around chatting at dinner. We never learned how to make conversation. And I'm learning now that, you know, when, when I meet people to make conversation and have a conversation that's not political, it's still hard for me. Really? Even yes. now with your husband and daughter? Um, I'm learning. <laughs> so what did you talk about with your dad before you became political? I don't really remember any great conversations. I mean, my memories of childhood are more around food and cousins and running around and my grandparents and... Um, also, the awareness of uh, living under a dictatorship or a, a war that had broken out with India, a lot of different fragments, I think, which sort of feed into what I'm doing now, maybe. And how did you decide to go to the U.S.? Was that a big decision? It was a big decision. We had a teacher. She was a Scottish teacher, a redheaded teacher, Marjorie Rahman. She was married to a Pakistani woman, wonderful, wonderful woman. She passed away a few years ago. And she took on the role of student counselor, and she would advise students on where they should go to college. And mm -hmm. she suggested that I go to Brown, and I had never okay. heard of Brown before because, you know, <laughs> 35 years ago, who I mean, in Pakistan, you only heard of a couple of big names. But And, and, and I, got, I got a scholarship, and my mother was like, you're too young, and you should, why don't you go to you know, do undergrad here and go abroad for college? And for your master's. And my father was like, you know, let her go. She has a scholarship. Let her go. Wow. So how did you fall into journalism? Were you, was it while you were at Brown, while you were studying no, art? No, no, no. It was actually before. I, I interned for for about nine months or ten months before. I, and um, we had Hamid Harun, who was with the Dawn Group. 
he came to our school what's the don group uh, it's a big newspaper group in pakistan and he came to our school and he gave a talk and he said if anybody wants to intern so i think about four or five of us you know you raised your hand in the audience or I mean, did you go after i think i don't remember i think we went to up to him afterwards and he gave us an assignment and i think from what i remember i was the only one who completed it <laughs> <laughs> nobody else really did and so i got this internship at an evening paper and it was in was in what language was, was in it english in? and i was on the weekend the feature side and the editor was a woman called zora yusuf who's still a very dear friend and um we were all very scared of her then she's a tiny little woman who never raised her voice but she was really very powerful and she's one of the people who was part of the start of the women's movement in Pakistan who was among the pioneers of the women's movement in Pakistan which was happening at that time in 1981 in response to the military dictatorship so the islamization of Pakistan they started introducing these laws like in Islam you are allowed to take more than one wife men are allowed to take more than one wife but again there are very strict rules about it you have to have the first wife's permission you have to be able to treat them equally they have to there are other various rules which are not followed and the laws that this dictator had introduced at that point um made sex outside of marriage a criminal offense and it made rape a private offense we are still suffering the fallouts of that in pakistan also in terms of how people's mindsets have been tampered with what the taliban did in afghanistan what the kind of things that saudi arabia still does which nobody talks about so they introduced the stoning to death for sex outside marriage and the one that sparked off the women's movement a woman a young woman who had run away to get married to a man who was already married but in this young woman's family when they filed a police case of abduction against the man who had she'd run off with and when she said she'd married him but in that culture a lot of the marriages would not be actually registered uh, and so they hadn't registered their marriage under the law so they weren't legally married and so it was adultery and so they were sentenced to stoning by death and that's what sparked the women's movement that zora my editor was a part of so that's how as a young intern i came into contact with the rising women's movement in pakistan and our our newspaper was resistance paper you know against the dictatorship one of the three or four uh, such papers around the country Bina has a master's in television documentary and she's made dozens of films. Many of them include herself and her family because she intertwines her experience and her journey with the questions that are guiding the film. I was curious how a young woman growing up in Pakistan first found a camera and learned how to direct. You know, I wonder if you can tell me how you first picked up a camera and had the the courage to say I'm going to make a film. I'm going to I'm going to make a film about something I care about, my community, my work, my friends. When I had the opportunity to go away for and and get get a master's degree through this fellowship that I got, I don't even remember how I decided that it would be documentary that I wanted to do documentary filmmaking. And I did this documentary film and my first film was about a dancer um who had to leave Pakistan in order to be able to dance. and to be, and become world famous which, so they gave you a camera at the fellowship you learned how to use one or yeah it was a, the fellowship it, i was a part of a class so i actually didn't get into the class originally because okay. it was a it, i was on the waiting list because to be 
admitted to the class, you had to, it was an application process. Like I applied for a master's program at Goldsmiths College in London, in London University. And I applied to two or three other places, but this was the one that I really wanted because it was TV documentary. And um, I was put on the wait list because I had no TV experience. I had no camera documentary or TV experience or camera experience. And then when I got in because somebody, uh, there was a space that opened up and they took me. And then he said that over the summer, he wanted me to get some, you know, basic camera experience. Um, so I, you know, went to a friend who had some, who, who had done some documentaries and, you know, who showed me the basics. And then at... Like push the red button? Yeah, what to do, like focus and, you know, how the right white balance and stuff like that. Just very basic stuff. But they, we, we did all that at in the class as well. But, and then uh, the class was really, uh, it was theoretical plus practical. And the topic that I chose was why documentary is more important to democracy than 24-7 news. When I came back to Pakistan, the first 24-7 news channel was just starting and I literally forced them to take me on. I mean, they were, it was part of the media group I had been working with before. Mm-hmm. So they were hiring and... Uh, I wasn't in the first batch that they hired. I was like, what do you mean you're not hiring me? I, I, you know, I had to go through this interview process and thing. And I was thinking, why don't they just take me? I'm a good journalist. Why don't they just take me? Why, why aren't they just taking me? But then, you know, everything has to have a process. And I think it was good that I went through that process and I was interviewed and I was taken on merit and not just because they knew me, you know. Do you feel comfortable being a director? Yeah, I do. I like being a director much more than I like being on the other side of the camera. <laughs> I like directing because it's like editing. I love editing because what I do as an editor is I try to get people's words. I get them to say what they want to say, but better in a more effective way. How do you do that? So this is something that I learned by being edited. The articles that I've liked, the ones where I feel like I've learned the most have been where I've had editors get back to me with questions and, you know, explain this, explain that, where'd you get out? And then it's like infuriating at the time. So I'm like, well, isn't it clear enough? And you like make me go back again and do, you know, but that's how you learn. And um, this is what I'm trying to tell my students also, that writing is a process. It's not like you just put something out there and it's just done. You have to revise, you have to question. And it's when you have that back and forth with somebody with a second pair of eyes, that really helps you to polish and present what you're doing in a way that is most effective. And that's one thing I think is also important to think of when you're as a communicator. Why are you doing it? What are you trying to communicate? And I think it's really important to be aware of that and to think about the strategy. And what I tell my reporters and students also is that, you know, never put anything out there without having processed it in your mind first. Don't just vomit out the first thing that comes into your head hate that. So we are moving into our lightning round. I like to say that after we go deep, we go light. Uh, You mentioned you were writing a book. What is it about? Oh, gosh, it's uh, something I've been working on for a long time, and it relates to a lot of these issues I've been working on, the stories that I've been working on, the issues I've been working on is to do with democratic aspirations and movements and basically the universal fight for rights and dignity as I've witnessed it and been part of it or researched it in Pakistan. Do you have a favorite aspect of motherhood? 
It could be right now or in the past. I would. I don't know. I mean, I find it hard to see myself as a mother. I know a lot of times people say, you know, as a mother, I can't help feeling this or as a mother, I can't help feeling that. But I honestly feel my daughter is so much her own person. And I've never tried to see her or treat her as an appendage of me. I would say it's always challenging. But I mean, it's just it's just wonderful to see. I think the most rewarding aspect I think would be to see a human being who you gave birth to become a full human being who is an amazing contribution to the world, who is funny, who is kind, who is creative, and uh, who I think um, is a, a good addition to the world. When you relax, do you read? Do you write? Do you do nothing? Do you watch TV? Do you watch movies? I very rarely watch a movie for relaxation. I'll only do that <laughs> with my husband, pretty much. What do you guys watch? You know, we love spy thrillers and uh, detective <laughs> stuff. <laughs> you know, one of the things that I really hope for this show when I think about people listening to it is when we think about sharing women's stories and women's voices and really demystifying success, you know, like really thinking about it step by step. What's one thing that you feel like is kind of a helpful mental place that you go to? when you feel overwhelmed or you feel like there's too much for you to tackle at once? A couple of things. I think one is to breathe in. Remember to take things step by step, to remind yourself. Sometimes you forget to and then it gets too much. I think another thing to remember is that success is relative. What is success? I mean, is success money? Is it fame? Is it recognition? Is it doing the things you love to do in a way that you can do them? Um, And I think it's important to Realize that whatever you think of is success. Nobody who you think of as successful just got there. It, it's all struggle and hard work. And I mean, I'm still struggling. I, I'm still learning. I'm still working. What is success? What makes me successful? I don't know. And I just want to say on behalf of the women, thank you for your work and for being here. And, uh, and thank you for, uh, and I was thinking this morning of, I don't know why I was thinking of sisterhood is global for some reason that Praise was resounding through my head this morning. So I guess um, I want to say thank you for taking that forward <laughs> through your work. Um, sisterhood is global. I'm going to carry that. On the day of this interview, Bina had to take calls at the beginning and the end of our interview to comment on major events that were happening that day in Pakistan, calling into a Pakistani news station that was reporting live. So the conversation around dialogue and restorative justice can continue. You can follow Bina's work and find her writing and her films on Twitter at Bina Sarver. That's B-E-E-N-A-S-A-R-W-A-R. The Women is a production of iHeartRadio and myself, your host, Rose Reed. Holly Fry is our executive producer. This episode was mixed by Adrian Lilly. Special thanks to Nora Kipnis, the iHeart team, and especially Gail Reed. You can find a picture of me and Bina in the studio on Instagram or Twitter at The Women Pod. We will be away for New Year's Eve, but back with new episodes weekly in 2020. Our next episode is on January 7th. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 